Have you ever thought to yourself what Christianity looks like in the everyday? Like we come to church, we sing songs, we hear preaching. Um, If you are above and beyond, you go to our equipping classes and you go to the theology class and you are, you are, uh, your affections are lifted high to the sky because that's what good theology does. And, and a lot of times in Christianity, it's all disconnected. Like, like we don't see things as a cohesive whole. And we really don't know what like the gospel, how it affects the everyday or, or what we're supposed to be doing every single day what everyday Christianity looks like. And what we have for us this morning in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9 through 12 is Paul's picture of what everyday Christianity looks like. What does it look like to be a Christian every single day? Is every day a radical day? Is every day a catalyst of a day? Um, you, you, you hear a lot of people and preachers talk about Christianity these days, and a lot of it revolves around these big moments, catalysts, passion, you know, uh, reckless faith. We're going to go out there. Everything's going to be like this big emotional high, and it's just, everything is just going to be so big and huge, and Christianity is just great, and it's, it's so big, and it's, it's exciting, and, and for many of us, I think, for, for myself, at least I can speak, um, every day is not like that, like at all, uh, and in fact, um, if, you are, if you are on the Bible reading program that we do here, there are many times when you read the Bible, and, and some days you are in the heavenlies, the, the Word of God just, just speaks to you powerfully, and, and God speaks to you where you're at, and it's what you needed to hear. And then some days, you read about a bunch of kings slaughtering each other, and you're like, well, okay, that's interesting, right? It, not, not every day is like this, this power day, this, this spiritual high. So what does everyday Christianity look like? That is the topic of our text this morning. We are at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9 through 12. Paul writes, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers through Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that way you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we will take apart this passage and mine its riches. Let's pray. Father, this morning we are grateful for you. We come here as your people to sing to you, to lift you up, to worship you with our songs. But God, we also come here to worship you by our response to your word. So I pray that you would help all of us this morning to understand what everyday Christianity looks like, to understand your message. Help me to communicate your word faithfully. Don't let me get in the way of your message. And and let your people be receptive to your word. So these things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Like we talked, like I just said, last week's text uh, was 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 7. And this week's text, we are going through verse 9 and 12. Last week's text and this week's text comprise the first 12 verses of 1 Thessalonians 4. The reason why I tell you that is because last week's text and this week's text are tied 
together. Together, they form what everyday Christianity looks like. So if Britt and I were on our A game, which we're not always on our A game, which is hard to believe, I know. But if we were on our A game, last week's message title would not have been called Holy Sex. It would have been called Everyday Christianity Part 1. And today's text title would have been Everyday Christianity Part 2. Because really, these, these 12 verses go hand in hand. Last week, Brent covered 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8, and there we learned that God's will for us is our sanctification, our being set apart from the world to Him. A lot of times Christians talk about God's will and they really don't know, you know, is this God's will, is this God's will? They don't really know. Well, the Bible tells us what God's will is. God's will is your sanctification, your holiness you're being set apart from the world to god we are to become more holy we are to become more like christ that really was the drive for last week's message last week's text the reason why christians do sex the way that they do is because they're they are going to they are pursuing holy sex the, the sex the way that god has established our text this week consists of four commands. So last week we talked about holiness, we talked about sanctification, we talked about sex done the right way. This week it's very simple, it's straightforward, not really all too theological, it's just four commands. Number one, love one another. Number two, live quietly. Number three, mind your own affairs. And four, work. This practical, this is practical, down-to-earth, everyday Christianity. This text is going to show us what that looks like. So number one, love one another. We see this in verse 9 and 10. Love one another. Paul writes, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no one, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. So let's look at that first phrase in verse 9. He says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. So Paul is saying, now I'm, I'm talking about, we talked about sex, we talked about the Holy Spirit, we talked about holiness. Now he's, he's changing topics. He says, all right, now, concerning brotherly love, that would, be, that would be love among Christians. Now, concerning brotherly love, Paul says, you have no need for anyone to write to you. What this means is that the Thessalonians were a model church. As you read the New Testament, you see a lot of churches are really, really messed up. And Paul, like, like uh, lacerates them because, uh, because Paul's style is like he drops the hammer on people and it's awesome. And, and he does that a lot. But with the Thessalonians, he, he's really gentle. He's really kind. And, and he really doesn't have all that much negative to say. And, and, he's, and here, he's actually commending them. He's saying, you need to, concerning brotherly love, I, I don't need to tell you anymore. You're doing it. You, you, are, you are like a, a model church. They were an example throughout the, all of the land. And we know this already because Paul has already told them this. In 1 Thessalonians 1.8, he says, For not only has the word of God sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Archaea, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere 
so that we do not need to say anything. The Thessalonians were a model church. Uh, everyone has these romanticized ideas of what a good church looks like. And if you want to know what a good church looks like, it's like the Thessalonians. They were a good church. They knew, the God, they knew the word of God so well that the word of God was spreading forth from them. It was sounding forth, Paul says, from them. It was spreading through Macedonia and Archaea. Their, their faith was going everywhere. Everyone knew the Thessalonian church. They were a commendable church. They were a model church. They were already exhibiting brotherly love so much that Paul doesn't need to tell them to do this. I know that's obvious, but it's not that obvious, right? Um, Paul tells them, I don't need to tell you how to love properly or to, to exhibit brotherly love because you already are. They were doing this so much that they didn't need further instructions. Now, why was it that the Thessalonians did not need further instructions? Why was it that they were already uh, like doing a good job at loving each other? We, we find the answer to that question in the very next phrase. Look what Paul says. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. The reason why the Thessalonians didn't need someone like Paul to teach them how to love is because they were being taught by God. You see that? No one needs to tell you. I don't need to instruct it to you. I don't need to tell you how to, how to do brotherly love. For you yourselves have been taught by God. The, the Greek here, the underlying Greek, is literally God taught. And this is the only place in the whole New Testament where this, those two words go together like that. The Thessalonians did not need Paul to teach them how to love because they were literally God taught. They were taught by God himself how to love. The Thessalonians were taught by God because they had God living within them through the Holy Spirit. The kind of love being described here is agape love. Uh, if you have been in church for any amount of time, you've heard preachers wax eloquently between the differences between phileo love, which is like a brotherly love, Philadelphia is where we get the name, and agape love, which is like a self-sacrificial love. The point is this. The love that the Thessalonians were exhibiting was a love that is self-sacrificing and other-preferring. We've already seen Paul make this, this point clear in the previous verse, in verse 8, where he states that whoever continues in sexual sin um, disregards God. 1 Thessalonians 4, 8, he says, Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So it's already crystal clear. It's, it's in the context here. Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit here. He's saying you have the Holy Spirit residing within at salvation, every believer receives the Holy Spirit who lives within us and teaches us. If you are a Christian this morning, if you are someone who's repented of your sin, ask God to forgive you and trusted that he will, if that is you, then right now, God is literally indwelling you with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third member of the triune God, is indwelling you. And in the Old Testament, there was an, an, an eager expectation, a longing for the day when people would be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah 31, 33-34, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. 
And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his, each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. God writes his law within our hearts because we have the Holy Spirit residing within us. The Apostle John in 1 John 2, 20, through 20, 20 and 27 says this, But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you have all knowledge. And then verse 27, he says this, But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. The Holy Spirit lives within us, he is God within us, and he is teaching us. In this context, the Holy Spirit specifically teaches and empowers believers to love each other like we should. Romans 5, 3-5, Paul writes this, Not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces hope, and endurance produces, or produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. The Thessalonians were taught God's love. They were God-taught specifically how to love because the Holy Spirit who had been given to them was pouring out His love in their hearts. That is how they were God-taught. The Holy Spirit Himself was teaching them how to love. The Bible makes clear to us that the Holy Spirit, one of his chief roles is to glorify Christ, and one of his chief roles is also to make the Bible clear to us. If you want to know the ultimate example of love, you must look to Jesus, and you find Jesus in the Scriptures. Jesus in John 10, 11 says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Romans 5, 6-8 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time God, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you want to be taught by God how to love, then you look to Christ. And you look to Christ in His Word. And in His Word, we see a love from Christ that is self-sacrificial and others-preferring. We see a love that is so amazing, so radical, so countercultural that Christ died for His enemies. And, and, and this should really strike us because Paul's logic here is very clear. Paul says that people don't really die for righteous people. Okay, are you following along? People don't die for righteous people. They, 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 they hardly even lay down their life for good people. But Christ died for us when we weren't good people. When we were his enemies, he still died for us. Now, as your pastor, I love all of you for the most part. I'm kidding. I love you all. I do. But I don't think there's anyone in here, maybe family, of course, um, but I don't think there's anyone in here that, like, I would 
lay down my life for you. I, I honestly, I really don't think so. Like, I like myself a lot. I love myself. So sometimes, you know, do you ever play these games where you think to yourself, like, I used to do this when I was a kid. I would think to myself, if our house caught on fire and Shrey and I were trapped, and, like, my parents were on the outside, who would they pick? Now, it wasn't much of a mystery to me. I knew who they would pick. They'd pick me, obviously. Um, but, like, like it, is, it is a God-like love to lay down your life for somebody else. That is the highest expression of love. And that's the kind of love that Christ had for us. We weren't his friends. We weren't his people. We were his enemies. We were living in rebellion against him. The people who lacerated his back, who spit on him, who beat him, who tore out his beard, who drove nails through his wrists and his feet. These are the people Christ died for. And you have to ask yourself, outside of your family, is there anyone that you would be willing to lay your, your life down for? And the people that are coming to your mind right now, those are the, the people that you esteem highly. But with Christ, he did not lay down his life for people whom he esteemed highly. He laid down his life for the worst of the worst. This is what agape divine love looks like. Ephesians 5.2, and walk in love, Paul says, and walk in love. How do we walk in love? He answers that for us. As Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. As believers, we are to love like Christ loves. 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. If you want to see God's love, if like the Thessalonians, you want to be God taught, then you look to the Bible because there you behold Christ and you see his love. So we, we, we become God taught like the Thessalonians by looking at the Bible, by looking at Christ's example of love. But the Bible also gives us very practical ways in which we are to, to love one another. These are found in the myriads of the one another passages. So, so all of us, I think, right, we're all reading self, right? We're all reading through the Bible every day, right? New, New Testament twice in a year. And, and as you're reading through the Bible and you see, there, there's a frequently, the, the, the New Testament writers are do this for one another, love one another, prefer one another, esteem one another, bear one another's burdens, like one another's like all throughout the scriptures. The reason for that is because those are very, very practical ways in which we can love each other. Philippians 2, 3 through 10 is one of these passages. And it's a key passage, but it's only one of many. So I'm going to read it. Paul says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility... Count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only on his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men." And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So here Paul tells us, be of the same mind, be united, consider others better than yourself, look at others before yourself, follow Christ's example. The word one another is used a hundred times in 94 verses in the New Testament. Of those 94 verses, 47 of them, 47 of those verses tie directly to how Christians are to love one another. And if you want to see that list, we actually go through it through in our, in our DHC Essentials class. If you've not taken DHC Essentials, I know we just made this a cheap commercial, but that's okay. If you've not taken DHC Essentials, you should. We have a whole lesson on community and outreach, and we go through these one another passages when we're talking about Christian community. So if you want to be God-taught like the Thessalonians, then read your Bible. Read your Bible. That is where God is going to teach you. You're not going to drift through life going on your feelings and impressions. It's not good enough. The only place for objective truth is the Word of God. And this is his means of speaking to you. So Paul says in verse, let's look at verse 10. He says, For that indeed, loving each other, is what you are doing to all the brothers through Macedonia. The Thessalonians were excelling in their love for other brothers. They were being an example to other Christians and other churches. This expression of love that the Thessalonians had towards other Christians was probably financial. We know this because in 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 12, or 1 through 2, Paul writes this, For we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their parts. So Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians, he talks about the Macedonians. And he says, the Macedonians are afflicted. They are suffering. They are impoverished. They are poor. Yet, in their affliction, in their poverty, they have overflowed financially generously. And if the Thessalonian church was the ideal church, the model church in Macedonia, then Paul probably has them in mind when he writes to the Corinthians. Even though the Thessalonian church was poor, even though the Thessalonian church was suffering, they still loved they still gave generously. So Paul says, no one needs to tell you how to love. You've got that down. You're doing a great job. But notice what he says at the last part of verse 10. He says, but we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Paul says, yes, you have loved others and you have done it well. Now love to the max. Do this more and more. In this book, he's going to give us two ways, at least, that the Thessalonians can love more. First, they're to love their pastors. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12-13, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. So the first way the Thessalonians can continue to love, to love to the max, to love more and more, is to love their pastor. Now, I know this sounds awfully self-serving, but hey, I don't pick the text. The text is what it is. You know, it's no, again, here again, Brent's gone. 
You know, have you noticed this? If it's about, if the message is about finances or church discipline or like loving your pastor, somehow Brent's never here. Interesting. <laughs> but you are to love your pastor. Show me some love, people. Um, what are some ways you can love your pastor? Um, I don't know. Uh, hook me up with your, with your cute friends, and that is a good way of loving your pastor. If you have any cute single ladies in their 20s, preferably with a British accent, send them along. Send them along. Um, oh, I should, uh, if you are visiting, I'm not married. Okay, it's okay. I'm not married. I'm not being a perv or anything. Um, all right, moving along. So, so the Thessalonians are to love their pastors. Second, they're to love each other. They're to love each other. First, first Thessalonians 5, 14 to 15. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. So the Thessalonians were doing a great job. They were a model church. They were loving as they should. And Paul tells them, keep on going. Love to the max. Do this more and more. Love for one another makes Christianity unique. I'm just mentioning this now, and we're going to talk about this more later. But our love for each other really does make Christianity stand out among all of the world's religions. The Apostle Paul, or the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John, in his letters, has some very strong language about loving as a Christian. Notice what he says in 1 John 2, 9-10. Whoever says he's in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. But, verse 10, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So loving each other, loving other believers is not, uh, not like something that you can just ignore. It's not something that's not important. John says it's so important that whether or not you love other Christians is indicative of whether or not you're saved at all. John says if you are not loving other believers, you're not a Christian. He says you can actually test yourself to see if you are a Christian by your love for other Christians. So Paul tells us, Paul tells the Thessalonians, you're doing a great job of loving, keep on loving. Let's go to verse 11. What's the second thing that he tells them? So he says, we urge you to love more and more. And then secondly, he says, live quietly. Live quietly. And we see this in verse 11. And to aspire to live quietly. To aspire is, is, is a strong desire. Paul is, is literally saying, make it your ambition. Strongly desire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and to work. Make it your ambition to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work. Paul is saying, have a strong desire to, first off, live quietly. Now, what does it mean to live quietly? Does this mean that you're not supposed to talk? Does this mean that you are just to stay huddled up in your house and just be quiet? Is that what Paul is getting at? There are a lot of ideas and commentaries about, Paul mean, about what Paul means when he says to live quietly. Quietly. So if you, if you were to pull out a stack of commentaries and you were to read what the commentators have to say about what Paul is saying here to live quietly, there are a lot of ideas about what Paul means. Some people, most of them, are, are all political in nature. In other words, they're saying 
according to the commentators, that Christians should totally remove themselves from anything secular. So no Christian should be involved in politics. No Christian should like go to city council meetings. No, no, no. They're to live quietly. They're to retreat. But I don't think that is what Paul has in mind here. Because if Paul wanted to say, retreat from the political scene, he probably would have said, retreat from the political scene. Because Paul's the kind of person who like, doesn't hold back words. You remember in Galatians, he, he says, like, uh, I wish that those who teach circumcision for salvation would like, emasculate themselves. Like, like, you want to be circumcised? Cut it off. That's literally what Paul is saying. Okay, so, so if Paul wants to say something, like, he's going to say it, okay? So it, there, there are, like, no boundaries for Paul. He, like, he, he's, like, uh, he just goes out there and he says it, and he lets the, the chips fall where they fall. Like, Paul's like a man's man. He just says what he says, okay? So if Paul was wanting to say, don't be involved politically, he wouldn't cower away. He would say it. That's my point. That's not what Paul has in mind. What Paul has in mind when he says to live quietly is to live quietly. Christians are not to be raucous. raucous. We're, not, we're not to be rioting in the streets. We're not to be making sure that everyone conforms to us. Okay? As Christians, as believers, especially new ones, they think, we think, we think, it's our business to go about making sure that everybody aligns with us, our ethical values, our systems. And if you don't agree with me, I'm a Christian. I'm going to make sure you agree with me, right? That's not what Paul is saying. Paul's saying is as believers, we're not to be obnoxious. We're not to be making a thing of ourselves. We're not to be riding in the streets. We're to be living quietly. We're to be living quietly, going about, doing our own thing, not making a show of ourselves. This admonition to live quietly is directly tied to the next command, which is to mind your own affairs. As we're going to see, all of these commands interlock together. And, and, and one way that we live quietly is the next phrase, to mind your own affairs, which we have continuing in verse 11. Paul says, and aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs. Affairs. Now, some of you might have a, transli- a translation that says, mind your own business. Um, but you notice the ESV translated as mind your own affairs. Um, mind your own business is a fine translation that communicates part of what is being said, but it doesn't communicate all of what's being said. Okay, so the Greek word here, the Greek words literally mean to do one's own things. So in the Greek, there's nothing about mind your own business. It just means literally do one's own things. So, so, what, so it's true that doing one's own things means minding your own business. We see, we see that taught in the Bible. We see that taught elsewhere in 2 Thessalonians 3.11. For we, Paul writes, For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. First Peter 4.15, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. So, so part of what it means to mind your own, fair, uh, own affairs is to mind your own business, keep your nose out of everybody's business that's like not your place. That's part of it, but it's, it's, it's more than that. It's not just that. That's part of it. That's a big part of it, but it's not just minding your own business. Minding your own affairs means not meddling in other people's affairs, 
but, and, and making sure that you are actually where you should be. Are you walking with God? Are you reading your Bible? Are you praying? Are you living in obedience? Minding your own affairs includes all of those things. Before you go around fixing the world, you got to make sure you're okay. That's what Paul's point. That's what Paul is getting at. Before you go out there and rescue the world, make sure you are right with God. So he says, love more and more, live quietly, and then number three, or number four here, work. And we see this in verse 11 through 12, work. And so he says, and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work. Working is central to everyday Christianity because it is something that is done or should be done by all of us. Like, the Bible actually tells us to work. The Bible has very harsh language for lazy people who refuse to work. Proverbs 6, 6-11, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. The Bible basically says if you are lazy and you aren't working, like ants are showing you up. They're working. They don't need a supervisor. They don't need a manager telling them what to do. They just do it. This is harsh. The Bible's literally saying if you are not working when you can, you are worse than an ant. Proverbs 21, 25. The desire of the sluggard kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Providing for your family through work is a huge spiritual issue. If you are not providing for your family when you can be, according to this text, you are denying the faith itself and you are worse than an unbeliever. You are worse because you know better, because you have the Holy Spirit living within you and you have the Word of God written down for you. The Bible has nothing positive to say about lazy people who will not work when they can, who will not get a job. Paul even commands Christians to separate from other Christians who won't work. 2 Corinthians 3.6 Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. Why? Because this is a spiritual issue. If you are not providing for your family when you can be, this is a spiritual problem. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Paul says... If people aren't willing to work, they should not eat. Now, 
that has huge ramifications uh, politically, and we're not going to go there because that's just, this is not the place. But from a personal level, Paul, the Bible teaches if people aren't working when they could, they shouldn't be eating. If that sounds harsh to you, I'm sorry. That's what the Bible says. Work is a spiritual issue. The great reformer John Calvin, he said this, and we'll put it on the screen. He says, For nothing is more unseemly than a man that is idle and good for nothing, who profits neither himself nor others and seems born only to eat and drink. I think Calvin's 100% right. It is despicable. It's disgusting. It's, it's, it's unseemly to have men who could be working who don't. They're just big babies. They just, they just eat and sleep. That's it. That's it. They are worthless. And the Bible has nothing positive to say about people in that situation. So he says, you, let's go back to uh, verse 11. He says, we inspire you to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with, to work. The Bible doesn't treat work as a necessary evil, right? A lot of times we have this idea that like, oh, I hate my job. Oh, I have to go to work. Work is just horrible. Um, the Bible doesn't treat work that way. It doesn't talk about work that way. Work is not a necessary evil. Work is something that God created and commanded for us to do. Genesis 1, 27 through 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. That word there, the, the subdue, that's, that's work. We are to be subduing the earth, the, the earth. We are to be working. Part of what it means to subdue the earth is to work. Genesis 2, 15. Remember, too, that the fall happens in chapter 3. Genesis 2.15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Work is not a result of the fall. Work is not a result of sin. In the, in the world as it was meant to be, in the ideal world, Adam worked. Work was there. God created work. Not only did God create work and command it, and our working partly reflects what it means to be made in God's image, but God actually models for us work by his work of creation. Following his work of creation, God rested, not because he was tired, not because he was fatigued, but to be a model for us, to establish a pattern for us to follow. Six days of work and a day of rest. Genesis 2, 2. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Exodus 28 through 11 in the law that establishes the Sabbath. This is, notice, notice how this works. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is your guest. For in six days the Lord made heaven, the earth, the sea, and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The point of the Sabbath was not to add another rule to the Israelites just to add another rule. That was not the point. In God's kindness, he actually commanded his people to take a day to rest. Don't work. Don't exert yourself. Just rest. Jesus, after all, in Mark 2.27 says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The whole significance of a day of rest is that you have six days of work. You see how that works? If you had six days of rest, 
another day, whatever, it doesn't matter. But if you have a day devoted just to rest, the it now has significance because you are working six days. And this is the pattern that God established by his own work of creation. Now, the reason why you and I push back against work is because what the fall introduced into our world was now work becomes toilsome. Genesis 3, 17 through 19, and, Adam said, or, and, and, and to Adam, he, speaking of God, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Work now stinks. Work now is toilsome because of sin, because the world is broken. Listen to how the psalmist in Psalm 90.10 describes life. The years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their lifespan is but toil and trouble, and they are gone, and we fly away. I think probably a lot of us, some of you maybe, you, you feel, this is how you feel, like, Day in, day out, you go to work, it's toilsome. You clock in, you look at your watch, you look forward to your break. You go to lunch, oh, lunch you're just thinking about not wanting to go back to work. And it's just like a non-stop, and you work your life away, and then you die. Right? Do you feel that way sometimes? It's okay, you can be honest. Uh, the Bible pretty much says it's, you feel that way, so I know you feel that way. Um, sometimes I feel that way, believe it or not. People, you know, um, even in the ministry, you can feel that way. Work, work is work. But yet, even in a fallen world... And even though work can be toilsome, work is still a gift from God, and it is still to be enjoyed. This is a crucial text, so take your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes, and we're going to be looking at chapter 2. I want you to see something. This is huge. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 24 through 26. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat, and drink, and find enjoyment in his toil. Some of your translations may say labor. Um, I think the ESV mistranslates this word, it should be labor. Um, find enjoyment in his labor. This also I saw is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat, or ha who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom, and knowledge, and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after the wind. This passage is crucial for our understanding of our work and life orientation in general. Why? For the unbeliever, for the non-Christian, everything, including work, is ultimately vanity. It's ultimately empty. It's ultimately meaningless because it is altogether temporary. So if you are just looking at work from a physical, earthly standpoint, it is toil. It is worthless. It means nothing. How do I know this? Because this is what Solomon says in this text. So we're, we're, we're in, you're in chapter 2. Go back a little to verse 9 of chapter 2. Look what he says. Solomon, the king. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained in me. And whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my, from my heart no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil. 
So Solomon says, I enjoyed work. I had pleasure in my work. Now notice what he says. And this was my reward for my toil. Solomon said, I enjoyed work, and my reward for enjoying work was that I enjoyed work. That was it. That was it. Verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity, and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Why? Skip down to verse 18. I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or be a fool. Yet he will be a master for all that I have toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. Solomon enjoyed work. He legitimately had pleasure in it. But as much as Solomon did, as much as he built, as much love as he had, at the end of the day, when Solomon died, all that he had accumulated, all that he had given his life for was going to go to somebody else. And who knew if that someone was going to take it further or just let it all go to the rut? We all know people or know of people who had the world given to them on a golden spoon. Their, their parents built this big company, big empire. They hand it off to their children. And what happens a lot of times? It just crumbles. It falls to pieces. So if you're looking at work as just an earthly thing, removing Christ from the equation, yeah, it, it's empty. It's toil. And you can give your heart to something. You can give your whole life to something. And in one generation, it'll be gone. Having Jesus Christ as the Lord of your life Overseeing everything that you do, giving purpose to everything you do, dignifies and makes work worth something. When Christ is your Lord, your work is not just toilsome nothing. When Christ is your focus, bringing him glory is your goal in all of life. And your work then has meaning. Because your work literally becomes an act of worship. Romans 12.1, Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 1 Corinthians 10.31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3.23-24, whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So how can work be a joy to you? How can it be an enjoyment to you? How can you have value in your work? You have value in your work not because of your work. You have value and joy and meaning to your work because your work is a means to exalting Christ. Your work is an act of worship. You don't go to work to please your boss. You go to work to work as unto the Lord. Notice what Paul says. Paul says, work with your hands. Paul isn't simply telling them just to work, although he is telling them that. In Paul's day, his original readers would have picked up on, on this little extra nuance that maybe we missed. 
When Paul tells them to work with their hands, he meant to work with their hands. Why is this significant? This is significant because in Paul's day, manual labor was seen to be the work of the lower class. It was undignified. It was the work of slaves. No respectable person would give themselves to this kind of labor. Even in our day, manual labor, blue-collar work is looked down upon. Some of you, as I talked about work, you might be objecting in your mind because of the work you do. You, you see it as inconsequential. Nobody cares if you replace a compressor valve or fix a sewer line or repave 20th every single summer. It's, it's, not, like, it's not an important job. Like, no, seriously, some of you are probably thinking this. Like, like you think, you know, next summer we're just going to repave the street again. Um, when I worked in a compressor shop, talk about toil. All day long, I cleaned compressor valves, broke them apart, cleaned them, rebuilt them, sent them out. Came to work the next day, guess what? A whole stack of compressor valves. Break them down, clean them, rebuild them, send them out. Day in and day out. Boom, 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 boom. And it was, it was horrible because, you, you know, you keep charts of the compressor valves. Like, I would, the, the next year, I'd come back and I'd be like, oh, I, I built this compressor valve. Here it is again. Like, like it's, it, right, it's inconsequential. It just goes on and on and on. And some of you might be thinking, well, you know, I, I don't really have an important job. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a missionary. And if you are thinking along these lines, you are wrong for two reasons. You are wrong because Paul says specifically here to work with your hands. Paul is dignifying manual labor. It's still an act of worship. And secondly, your thinking is wrong is because your identity is not your work. If your identity is your work, then you are setting yourself up for disappointment. It's great when you get promoted or climb the ladder, but it's absolutely crushing for you if you lose your job. Additionally, you lose your purpose at retirement when you lose your job. We've all read stories of pro athletes who face not playing a sport for their first time, and they, they don't know what to do. Why? Because their identity was in their sport. But as Christians, our identity is not in our work. Our identity is in Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Your work matters. Your work is a spiritual issue. Your work is an act of worship. And it doesn't matter if you're repaving 20th or flipping hamburgers. It does not matter because it's an act to the Lord. Don't fall into the trap that just because you're not a doctor or a missionary or a pastor that your life has no spiritual value and you're not called. Every, when Christ is your Lord and your work is worship, every calling is a high calling. Every act is an act of worship. There is no divide between the secular and the sacred. John Stott writes, It was the Greeks who despised manual labor as degrading for free men and fit only for slaves. Christianity came into direct collision with this view. Paul, the tent maker, reinforced the example of Jesus, the carpenter, and gave dignity to all honest human laborer. Yeah, Paul was a missionary, but he was a tent maker. Yeah, Jesus was the savior of the world, but he was a carpenter. Don't ever look down on your occupation. Why? Why should we work? Verse 12 gives us the answer. Verse 12, so that way you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent upon no one. The reason why we are to do all of these practical commands that Paul has given us is so that way, number one, 
we would walk properly before outsiders, and number two, that we would be dependent upon no one. It's kind of annoying that, that this is the way unsaved people are, but this is the way they are, that, that they look to us as, as, uh, as, as, as examples to be dismissed. You know what I mean? So some, some, sometimes you'll say, like, uh, you'll hear something like, um, oh, I, don't, I like Jesus, but it's his followers I can't stand, or, or oh, I won't go to church because it's full of hypocrites. Well, duh, like, like yeah, like, like you know, you, you have these really smart people, and they're like, oh, I don't go to church because it's full of hypocrites. And it's like, wow, how can Christianity continue after such a refined philosophical attack? Like, like it takes a real genius to see that Jesus' followers aren't perfect. Duh, of course Christians are hypocrites because Christians are human beings that aren't perfect. It's kind of like someone saying, I'm not going to go to the gym because it's, a fun, it's, it's full of a bunch of fat people, dumb fatties. Like, they're going to the gym so they can fix the problem. People go to the church not because they're perfect, because they're not perfect, okay? So, so, so this is kind of a silly reasoning. But still, but still there, is, there is a measure of truth to this, and the measure of truth is unsaved people do look at Christians and they do see the Savior by how we behave or by how we don't behave. Matthew 5, 13 says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. How we live does have direct ramifications about, about how people see Christ. Salt has many benefits. It serves as a preservative. It adds flavor, yada, yada. The point is this. When Christians are not living any different than the world, they are worthless. They are like salt that loses its saltiness. They are good for nothing. Our conduct as Christians is inherently evangelistic. In other words, how we live will either authenticate our, our faith, people will see our changed lives and believe that the Bible and Christianity is true, or how we live will give them an excuse for dismissing our claims altogether. So, these four areas, how does it affect our witness? Number one, we, we further witness towards Christ and verify his message when we love other believers as we should. Why? John 13, 35. By this, by your love for one another, all people will know you're my disciples. When we love our brothers and sisters in Christ like we should, the world takes notice. They take notice because they see a kind of love that they don't see anywhere else. We show forth Christ and we serve as a witness to the world when we live quietly. Matthew 10, 16, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. When Christians are leaving peacefully, Going about doing their own, own thing, the world takes notice. And anytime the world has persecuted the church, the church has grown. Why is that? Is it because Christianity declares a holy jihad and we tell the infidel we're going to chop off their head if they don't conform? No. It's because of the powerful witness of Christians who in persecution don't retaliate, don't make much of themselves, that the church continues to grow. Living quiet lives how do we show forth Christ when we mind our own affairs? 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching persist in this, for by doing so you will both save yourself and your hearers. There is nothing worse than a Christian who calls others out for something or meddles in someone's business seeking to correct something that they themselves are doing. Like That's the worst person on the planet. So instead, we are to be working on our own relationship with, with God. 
when we are with God as we should, then we can go about looking to help other believers. But we don't circumvent that by just going out and fixing everyone's business, fixing their problems and neglecting ourselves. No, we mind our own affairs. We make sure we're right with God. So reason number one, the reason why these, we should be doing these things is so that way it's evangelistic, it's for, for witness, but very practically, reason number two, the reason why we do these things is so that way we will not be dependent upon anyone. That last command specifically is very, tie, is very much tied to our work. A very real, very practical effect of a good work ethic is that you are not dependent upon other people. You're not, you're not, you're not leeching off of other people. So in conclusion, two big things to take away from this text. Number one, as believers, at a practical level, our everyday Christianity consists of this. What does Christianity, everyday Christianity look like? It looks like this. You love God. You walk with Him. You read His Word. You pray. You love others. You live quietly. You mind your own affairs. And you work. That's what everyday Christianity looks like. As we live God's way, our loving God, our loving others, our living quietly, our minding our own affairs, and our work will actually be a powerful witness to the world around us. That, that's how this is done. The world will see us like a light on a hill. They'll see our good works, and they will have a hunger put within them for God. Everyday Christianity, love God, love others, Live quietly, mind your own affairs, and work. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for very practical things like what you have for, had for us this morning. I pray for your church this morning. I pray for Desert Heights. God, let your people be a people who loves you, who takes the relationship with you seriously. Help us to be a church that loves each other. Help us to be a church that is living quietly, not boisterous, not making a scene, not making much of ourselves, but just living quietly, doing, doing holiness like you would have for us. Help us to be a church that takes seriously our own affairs, our own relationship with you. And help us to be a church that takes our work seriously and sees our work as your calling and sees our work as an act to worship. Father, I pray for your people this morning. Help us all to be the light to the world that you would have us to be. These things we ask in Christ's name. Amen.